Welcome to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. This week's episode of Westminster Insider is brought to you by Klarna. Klarna was created 16 years ago with a simple idea. To change the way you pay by charging retailers instead of our customers. Though we're 16, we like to think we're just getting started. Let's go for a ride in the driving rain, straight to the eye of the hurricane, sang Paul McCartney in his dreadful 2001 solo record called Driving Rain. And while the ageing Beatle was probably imagining some tumultuous trip in a sports car with his then-girlfriend, Heather Mills, he could equally have been describing a rain-sodden day on the campaign trail in a provincial British by-election. Because as anyone who's been up campaigning in Hartlepool this week will tell you, Being involved in a by-election really can feel like a political hurricane, with all the media's attention focused on your tiny part of the country. And the driving rain we've seen in the northeast this week is also frequently a fixture of these campaigns, not least because by-elections can happen at literally any point in the calendar. In fact, if you're a political canvasser pounding the streets at the wrong time of year, a little driving rain can be the least of your concerns. We had every bit of weather that you can think of thrown at us. We've had hail, we had snow, we had sleet, we had thunder snow. Who even knew there was such a thing as thunder snow? It's the dark, I think, as much as anything. You kind of get used to the cold, and I developed all sorts of elaborate combinations of outerwear to cope with the temperatures. But it's the dark that's really depressing. See, general elections tend to follow a simple pattern. With the odd exception, they happen in the warmer months of spring with media attention spread across the whole of the UK. But by-elections are different, triggered with little warning by the death or resignation of a sitting MP. They take place at random times, in random conditions, and they allow the whole of the Westminster bubble to focus entirely upon one random constituency, rolling into town en masse at the start of the campaign and then rolling out again three weeks later, leaving a new MP, a load of breathless hot takes and a somewhat bemused populace, in its wake. There is in fact something quintessentially British about the parliamentary by-election, and it's not just the generally dire weather. They pop up in Blackadder, of all places. Well, we in the Adder Party are going to fight this campaign on issues, not personalities. Why is that? Because our candidate doesn't have a personality. In Monty Python, too. And over here is Mr Hilter. Good afternoon. Mr Hilter's standing as a national Bolshevist candidate. He's got wonderful plans for Minehead. Like what? Well, for a start, he wants to annex Poland. There's just something about the sight of those oddball fringe candidates all lined up on the stage on election night. It's those quirky local history facts so beloved by every feature writer dispatched to find some background colour. It's those heavily accented and often comically indifferent vox pops on the TV news. It's the by-election gaffes, a special mix of the thick of it, Phoenix Nights and Hot Fuzz, all rolled into one. It's the sense of small-town drama, as the whole of the country becomes au fait with one community's long-standing fight over its hospital, or its factory closure, or its car parking charges. And it's that climax, that special by-election climax, all those weeks of tireless campaigning culminating in, well... An exhausted 4am speech on a small stage in an out-of-town leisure centre before everyone finally goes home to bed. 
To the victor, the spoils. To the loser, the weary lift home from their partner in the family Ford Focus. And maybe some late night beans on toast at the kitchen table. This is British politics in its purest form. And make no mistake, for the winning candidate, who just a few weeks before was probably just an ordinary punter working an ordinary job without any inkling that this was around the corner, it is a night to remember like no other. I still get quite emotional about it now and the goosebumps. I didn't have any political experience, really. I wasn't someone who had been a local councillor, a special advisor, and suddenly to find myself at the epicentre of this huge win was mind-blowing in many ways. I just remember walking through the doors and it's like that barrage, that absolute barrage of light bulbs flashing and everything else. And I was like, oh my God! (laughs) But should the rest of us really care so much? This is, after all, the election of one single MP to a parliament which has 650 members. Unless the government of the day has a majority of, well, one, does it matter much who wins? Aren't these just one-off results anyway? Hyper-localised events which would never be borne out elsewhere? Or can we actually learn something bigger about the national political picture from the way a by-election plays out? From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're asking whether by-elections really do matter, and speaking to the candidates and the campaigners about some of the most memorable contests in recent times. It's October 2016, and in a leafy, well-to-do corner of south-west London, an unlikely revolution is about to erupt. There's an awful lot to like about life in Richmond Park constituency, if you're able to afford it. Kew Gardens, the view from the bridge across pretty Richmond-upon-Thames, the wild deer at Richmond Park. But famously, there's one thing that pretty much nobody likes... the steady stream of low-flying aircraft coming in and out of Heathrow Airport. To be a successful politician in Richmond Park, you have to be against the expansion of Heathrow. No ifs, no buts, and certainly no disingenuous waffle about lying down in front of the bulldozers. Since his election back in 2010, Richmond Park's Tory MP, Zach Goldsmith, had been unequivocal. If his government ever backed a third runway at Heathrow he would resign. Now, unlike the current Prime Minister, who you may recall literally went and hid in Afghanistan to avoid having to vote on this issue, Mr Goldsmith is a man who keeps his word. And so when Theresa May's government announced on the 25th of October 2016 that Heathrow expansion was indeed going ahead, he quit his seat and vowed to stand again as an independent. The government has given the go-ahead for the construction of a third runway at Heathrow Airport. Today I have to honour my promise. And so I've resigned as your Member of Parliament and I'll be standing in the by-election as an independent candidate. So far, so noble. Although it got a little grubbier once it became clear the Tories had agreed not to stand against Goldsmith. Could he be beaten? With Labour never competitive in the seat, it was clear from the outset that only the Liberal Democrats could take him on. I was just sitting at my desk working on my spreadsheets. Local accountant Sarah Olney had already been selected as the Lib Dem candidate in Richmond Park. 
albeit for a general election that was not due until May 2020. I suddenly started getting loads of text messages and it was like, oh, we're on. <laughs> this is happening now. So I told my boss at work, I was suddenly like, uh, yeah, they've just called a by-election. <laughs> Can I have five weeks off? <laughs> Olney's boss may, of course, have been somewhat swayed by the knowledge that her employee appeared to have little chance of actually winning the seat, with Zach Goldsmith sitting on a whopping 23,000 strong majority. The Lib Dems, furthermore, were in pieces, having suffered near electoral wipeout at the 2015 election. Sarah Olney was certainly in no doubt about the outcome. I'd only joined the Lib Dems in May 2015, and I think it's fairly clear when you think about where the Lib Dems were in May 2015 that I certainly hadn't done that with the thought of becoming an MP. I just thought it would be a load of fun, you know, five weeks of really getting out there, being part of this high-profile campaign. Never thought I would win, never in a million years. But the joy of by-elections is that they can take on a life of their own, especially when there are larger political forces swirling. In late 2016, the post-referendum Brexit wars were just kicking off in Westminster. Donald Trump won the US election in the first few days of the campaign. Liberal Britain was wounded and angry and ready to start fighting back. Almost three quarters of voters in leafy Richmond Park had backed Remain in the EU referendum. But Zach Goldsmith, crucially... Had not. People just wanted to talk about it. People were really shocked about Trump. People were really shocked about the referendum. You know, my by-election campaign was very much, look, here's your opportunity to say something about that. Goldsmith's insistence that the by-election must be a referendum on Heathrow alone was starting to look badly misplaced. The Lib Dem campaign gathered pace. The media interest intensified. For Olney, a young mother and a complete newcomer to politics, it was not always a great deal of fun. I think the weirdest thing about standing in a by-election when it's suddenly high profile is that you do get an awful lot of attention. And if it's perceived to be about something bigger than just the constituency, as it was in this case, people will target you and they will use you to make political points and they will try and misrepresent you. And that's a very, very unpleasant experience. Finally, polling day dawned and the race was simply too close to call. You're just going around different teams, door knocking and, you know, just encouraging people. And it was absolutely bitterly cold, I remember. I think it was the coldest day of the whole campaign. So they kept me out on the doors until very late at night. Although I did sneak off to go and get my hair done at some point. I was sworn to secrecy <laughs> that that's what I was doing because they were kind of like, people be really annoyed if they know that you're doing that. But I was like, I'm going to be on telly later. <laughs> so I don't regret Very sensible. that because there are still a lot of photos. So I'm glad I took the time to do that. Olney and her husband spent the first part of the evening at home, watching the BBC's election night coverage on TV along with the rest of us. It wasn't until the very last moment that I realised that I'd won. And he had Chris Mason broadcasting from the count over Chris Mason's shoulder. I could see my campaign manager and the chief exec of the Liberal Democrats at the time, and they were talking and they were laughing. And it was the only time through the entire campaign <laughs> I'd seen the campaign manager smile. And I, that was right. I just remember getting this little trickle going down my back. And then a couple of hours later, I got the call. By the time Olney arrived at the leisure centre, just down the road in Twickenham, Rumour had swept through the crowd that Goldsmith's 23,000 majority had been destroyed. The atmosphere was electric. Basically, your mind is just going, Oh my God!
god <laughs> what's happening oh my god that was just phenomenal and then about half an hour later the announcement came so that bit actually is quite I wouldn't say anticlimactic but it is you're in a sports hall you go up onto this tiny little stage and then you say your piece and then it was just like a load of media after it and then there was a party back at the campaign HQ it was an old Chinese takeaway in in uh, just north of Kingston town centre and I just remember going in there afterwards and the entire room going wah <laughs> And it felt briefly as if there was genuinely, we were harnessing a real kind of, you know, the referendum isn't the end of the Brexit discussion kind of moment. You know, there's more to say about this and people want an opportunity to shape what happens next. For the Lib Dems, the joy would prove short-lived. Theresa May's snap general election the following summer saw Goldsmith regain Richmond Park by 45 agonising votes. And the party's attempts to overturn Brexit would also end in failure. But for Sarah Olney, at least, there was a happier ending. She regained her seat at the 2019 election, beating Zach Goldsmith for a second and final time. For Goldsmith, rejected once by voters in the London mayoral election and now twice in Richmond Park, obscurity loomed. He took the hint and left politics to get a proper job, learning a trade and doing something useful for his local community. <laughs> no, no. No, he didn't. No, no, Boris Johnson gave him a job for life in the House of Lords and a plum ministerial role in the government. Such other breaks when your dad was a billionaire and your best mates with the Prime Minister's girlfriend. Now, it's important to say that the most interesting by-election results are not always those where seats change hands. A year before Richmond Park, in December 2015... A now familiar scenario was playing out at the other end of the country. A new Labour leader, under pressure from within his party over his personal performance and his sluggish poll ratings, was facing his first big electoral test. A tricky-looking by-election in a Labour-held seat in the north of England. This, of course, was not Keir Starmer, but Jeremy Corbyn, who was preparing for his very own Red Wall battle. A by-election in Oldham West and Royton. Although in theory a very safe Labour seat, the contest was seen as highly problematic for Corbyn due to the growing threat at the time from UKIP in the north of England. UKIP had come close to snatching the nearby Haywood and Middleton seat from Labour in 2014, and it was assumed Corbyn's perceived lack of patriotism could prove electorally toxic in Oldham. Neighbouring MP Andrew Gwynne was dispatched to run the Labour campaign. Well, sometimes people have greatness thrust upon them. And I got a telephone call from the leader's office saying, we need an MP to be the political lead for the Oldham Western Royton by-election. You work alongside the regional director of the party and you call the shots on the campaign. You decide what the strategy is, what goes in the leaflets, how you're going to campaign. So it's a really important role. And are you thrilled to get this call and sent off to Oldham in the depths of winter to go and save, run this difficult campaign? Or is this a bit of a, a poison chalice? <laughs> well, it did feel like it at the start because you're thinking, oh, you know, this is the first by-election of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. It's in a constituency that is what we would now call the red wall seat. And, you know, oh, this is going to be a tough fight. This is, you know, deep UKIP territory. You're talking about a predominantly working class seat with a not 
insubstantial ethnic minority vote as well, but beyond that, very white working class and very traditional Labour, the kinds of people that we've been struggling to hold on to, not just in recent times, but actually probably since the dying days of the Blair government. Crucially, the local Labour Party ignored the very left-wing candidates being pushed by Corbyn and his team and instead selected the popular young leader of Oldham Council, Jim McMahon. It was a masterstroke. Jim was the local man done good, and certainly in terms of being able to sell a story on the doorstep, Jim, young councillor, council leader, really pushed Oldham to the forefront and transformed Oldham in his time as leader. We had a good story to tell. Already worrying Andrew Gwynn and his team, however, was an important date looming large in the calendar. Remembrance Sunday, three weeks out from polling day. Normally, you would not necessarily want to politicise an important event like Remembrance Sunday, but given that our opponents, the main opponents, UKIP, were almost certainly going to do that because of the perceptions of lack of patriotism, historic views on the armed forces and so on, we decided that we had to show that we were the patriotic party, that we were of the same values of the constituency that Jim was seeking to represent. We got Dan Jarvis down to meet some veterans. We always tried to ensure that the message was clear, that we are on your side. And, you know, it wasn't always easy with some of the stuff that our opponents were throwing at us about the leadership's previous views on a whole range of things. The strategy worked a treat and Labour held the seat comfortably. Congratulations, Jim McMahon, MP. Both Oldham West and Richmond Park generated plenty of excitement. But did they really matter in the grand scheme of things? Well, Oldham West showed Jeremy Corbyn could win seats outside of his metropolitan heartlands, contrary to popular opinion, albeit with a hyper-local campaign that was comically eager to put as much distance between itself and the leader as humanly possible. This, it's fair to say, was a lesson deployed by plenty of Labour MPs at the 2017 election, with some success. And the Richmond results showed there was still real fight left on the Remainer side following their EU referendum defeat, if they could unify around a single candidate. Good luck with that. But for all the drama, neither Oldham West nor Richmond signified a real long-term shift in British politics. In part two of the podcast we'll look back at some of the great by-election battles of years gone by which had real historic significance. From the street fights of Bermondsey in 1983 to Tony Blair and David Cameron's most important victories on their long marches to power. Stay with us. This is an advert from Klarna. Because it's Klarna, you might expect me to be sitting on a fluffy pink cloud. That's fun, but today's about facts. Over 14 million people and 13,000 retailers use Klarna in the UK. Klarna doesn't charge customers interest or fees when they buy now, pay later. Last year, buy now, pay later saved customers an estimated £76 million in credit card charges. OK, now where's that pink cloud? Please shop responsibly. 18 plus UK residents only. Credit subject to status. TNCs apply. Credit provided by Klarna Bank ABC. Klarna.com for details. One of the most interesting things about by-elections, and the reason they so often throw up a jaw-dropping result is the opportunity they offer to smaller parties to get a foothold on the electoral map. Voters, knowing full well they're not electing someone to actually run the country that day, can sometimes see by-elections as a chance to send the government, or indeed the opposition, a harsh message. 
and are often happy to use smaller parties as their vessel of choice. In our last episode, we heard about the SNP's stunning victory in the Hamilton by-election of 1967, a breakthrough moment which put the Nationalists on the electoral map for the first time. For the Liberals, the big breakthrough had come five years earlier, in Orpington, in Kent, in 1962. The very word Orpington remains the stuff of legend in Liberal circles to this day, credited by historians as the party's first big step on the road to post-war revival. The party had virtually disappeared in the post-war period. The Lib Dem historian and journal editor, Duncan Brack. Even in the previous general election in 1959, the party still only scored about 6% in the opinion polls and it only had six MPs in the House of Commons. So it's very easy to relegate it to a kind of you know historical relic, really. But Orpington began to change that. Orpington's outgoing Tory MP, the fabulously named Donald Sumner, had quit Parliament to become not the Queen of Disco, but a High Court judge. Weirdly, the government left it six months before even calling the by-election, allowing the Liberals to build up a strong campaign under local councillor Eric Lubbock. And for the Tories, it only got worse from there. The Conservative candidate was almost... You could have designed him to be as unpopular as possible. He went to the constituency. He made it clear that he had no intention of living there. It was a really cold winter when they were canvassing in January and February. He didn't actually go and meet people on the doorstep. He invited them to come into his heated caravan. I mean, you know, it's just a gift, really. And against the Liberal candidate, who was a popular local councillor, much younger, obviously not just a career politician who saw this as a step to greater things. The swing to the Liberals on polling day was enormous. Eric... Reginald the Lubbock, 22,000... It led to this feeling that perhaps the whole basis of British politics was giving way and the old class-based alignment of, you know, the working class voted Labour and the middle classes voted Conservative, that was breaking down and you saw a new breed of voter, what came known as Orpington Man, new white-collar middle class living in the suburbs, not necessarily sticking to the voting patterns of their parents and looking for a new home. Certainly, for the Tories, it did not bode well. And just two years later, the party would be out of power. And the Liberal revival did continue, slowly but steadily, although not on the scale some had hoped. Eric Lubbock, indeed, would eventually lose the seat back to the Tories at the 1970 election. He later reflected, In 1962, the wise, far-seeing people of Orpington elected me as their member. In 1970... The fools threw me out. Less fondly remembered now is the famous Liberal victory in the 1983 Bermondsey by-election, when a young candidate named Simon Hughes overturned a huge Labour majority. Bermondsey by-election. The Liberal SDP Alliance candidate, Simon Hughes, won by over 9,000 votes, taking the seat from Labour. His defeated opponent was an equally high-profile figure, Peter Tatchell a pioneering gay rights activist who suffered dreadful homophobic slurs throughout the campaign. Here he is discussing the impact years later. I'd say it was the dirtiest, most violent election in Britain in the 20th century and certainly the most homophobic election ever in British history. Historian Duncan Brack. It was unpleasant. There were a lot of attacks on him for his sexuality, mainly from independent Labour. I think they called it real Bermondsey Labour, a candidate who really detested everything Tatchell stood for. But I'm sad to say that Liberal campaign did reinforce that a bit and there were some digs at Tatchell over his sexuality. And indeed Simon Hughes, many years later, did apologise for that. Just a few weeks after Bermondsey came another show-stopping by-election, 
but at the other end of the country. If Simon Hughes' victory in February 1983 was the high watermark for the SDP Liberal Alliance, then Darlington, in March, was where it all came crashing down. It had every ingredient of political theatre. Broadcaster Steve Richards was there as a student journalist and loving every minute. Labour were doing terribly in the national polls. It was a Labour-held seat. The SDP had just won a seat, or the Alliance had, in Bermondsey a few weeks before the Darlington by-election, and it was a battle between all those parties, the Tories too. And every political star of that era was up in Darlington several times. Neil Kinnett, Dennis Healy, Michael Foote, half the cabinet, the entire SDP gang of four. And I was a journalist student who had seen these people on telly and was fascinated by them, got to meet them all. And the stakes were very high because if Labour had lost, there might have been an attempt to remove Michael Foote as Labour leader. If the SDP had won, they would have had fantastic momentum going towards the 1983 election. The SDP were hot favourites going into the by-election, but blundered badly with their selection of candidate, a well-known local journalist called Tony Cook. He worked for Tyne Tees in that region of the northeast, and they assumed he would be brilliant. They still then held daily press conferences, and they were attended by the then legendary by-election reporter for the BBC, Vincent Hanna. And Vincent Hanna slaughtered the SDP candidate. The Labour guy was a local guy called Ozzy O'Brien, who was very smart, at ease with questioning. And it just turned partly on the basis of that. On the eve of polling day, Richards made it into what was meant to be the SDP victory party, although nobody there was in celebratory mood. God, you know, it was like meeting rock stars in real life. And uh, it was funereal because they knew they were going to lose, but they were all there. And I was standing in front of a gas fire, which kept the room warm. And I was talking to Roy Jenkins for the first time ever. And I realised I w- the gas fire I was standing next to had started to light up my coat. (laughs) So I was on fire. But I didn't want to say to these people, these demigods, I was on fire. So I carried on talking and Roy James, oh, I'm rather confident that we will still win this by-election. And I said, how fascinating. And then he said to me with horror, I rather think you're on fire. I had to run off. The SDP campaign, too, had gone up in flames with the party finishing third in a by-election they'd expected to win. Labour leader Michael Foote lived to fight another day and promptly led his party to a crushing defeat a few months later at the 1983 general election. Margaret Thatcher secured an enormous majority and the SDP project, its momentum lost, was doomed to failure. How different it all might have been. Let's fast forward to 1994, And for the Labour Party, now 15 years out of power, things, famously, could only get better. Somewhat unexpectedly, and this is the joy of the parliamentary by-election, the historic place where things finally started to change was the unassuming black country town of Dudley. Tony Blair had only been Labour leader for a few short months, but already the shift in the public mood was overwhelming. For under-pressure Prime Minister John Major, A by-election in a Tory-held marginal was the last thing he needed. Journalist Steve Richards was dispatched to Dudley West to cover the campaign for the BBC. 
state of play so far. Steve, what do you have for us at the moment? Well, David, first of all, we can tell you what the turnout has been here. It's been around 47.3%, which is fairly low, but um, Labour are pointing out that it's not bad for a December by-election so near to Christmas. It was one of those experiences typical. where you knew you could extrapolate national lessons from it. The overwhelming sense was a profound and deep shift to Labour. You know, you had to be careful when you did Vox Pops in by-elections at the BBC to balance them out. But wherever we went, you found people saying they were going to vote Labour. It was quite hard to find Conservatives enthusing about their party. Labour's result in Dudley West was astounding. Candidate Ian Pearson won a landslide victory, with the biggest by-election swing from the Tories since the Second World War. I declare that Ian Ferrers Pearson has been duly elected to serve as Member of Parliament for the Dudley West... Steve Richards. I had no doubt after the Dudley by-election that a shift had taken place that wasn't fleeting. It was a reaction against the Conservative government after the collapse out of the exchange rate mechanism. It was the rise of Tony Blair. But whatever the combination, it was potent enough to feel that this shift was not just for a one-off by-election. And I'd covered other by-elections in that period, you know, under Neil Kinnock's leadership. You never felt the shift in the way that you did in Dudley. If that by-election signalled that Labour was finally on the path back to power, the Tories would have to wait 14 years for their own equivalent moment. By 2008, Labour had been in government for more than a decade and was in serious, serious trouble. Blair had gone and the new Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, was on the ropes over the 10p tax debacle. Just like for John Major before him, an impromptu by-election in a government-held marginal was a problem he could really do without. So when news came through that Crewe and Nantwich's long-serving Labour MP, Gwyneth Dunwoody, had died, it came as a bolt from the blue. Brown picked up the phone to one of his most able lieutenants, Birmingham MP Steve McCabe, and asked him to get up to Cheshire and save the seat. Frankly, I thought it was mission impossible and I said that to Gordon when he asked me to do it. Look, let's be honest, I don't think anybody wanted to do crew. I did it out of loyalty because he asked me, but I was under no illusions about what was going to happen. McCabe reluctantly agreed to take on the role of political lead in the crew and Nantwich campaign, helping coordinate Labour's efforts on the ground. Just about everything you can imagine was wrong for crew, we'd had the local government elections. We'd been hammered in Cheshire East. We were suffering under the weight of the 10p tax change. And I think we nationalised Northern Rock about two months before the campaign started. In uh, crew itself, of course, the Royal Mail were threatening to move the main sorting office out of crew and there were question marks about the future of the Bentley factory. <laughs> I, I can't think of anything worse. The Tories already had a candidate chosen for the 2010 election. Edward Timpson, a barrister whose family owned the high street shoe repair chain Timpson's. He had no idea how quickly his life was about to change. I was working very hard as a barrister on the Chester uh, North Wales circuit at that time and I remember getting a phone call at about five o'clock in the morning and it was actually my dad who called me and he said, listen, I'm really sorry to wake you up but I had the news on in the background, and I heard that Gwyneth Dunwoody had died. There's going to be a by-election. I just went numb. 
at that moment, I wonder what I let myself in for, if I'm brutally honest. Timpson was literally forced to abandon the trial he was partway through and immediately travelled to London to meet Tory party chiefs. I met with Caroline Spellman, who was the chair of the party at that stage, and had the conversation about, is there anything we should know about you that hasn't come up on the internet? What did you tell them? Well, the the problem is you rack your brains. You think, maybe there is something, and you sort of start to doubt yourself. But, you know, there was fortunately nothing that I could uh, throw at them that I thought would be a curveball, and was taken on a tour of the sort of media and press and comms for them to just sound me out. Is this someone who we're prepared to put up in a big by-election and not drop an absolute clangor along the way? You could see why the party was taking the by-election so seriously. It was immediately clear that this could be a very big moment for the Tories, with the party already riding high in the polls, taking a by-election seat directly from Labour. Their first in 30 years was the next obvious step on the path to power. In some ways, this was seen as the next serious test of the Cameron leadership and whether he was on the road to Downing Street. Crew and Nantrich became a sort of symbolic election. And really, I just felt that pressure from the very start. I mean, Fleet Street just decamped to Crew, and it became almost the circus coming to town. Wherever you moved, Michael Crick was around the corner. I've never done some interviews in my life. It was the best media training you could possibly get. Things got even more challenging for Timpson once the rather desperate Labour campaign began to target him personally and focused on his family wealth. Now, this being a British by-election, a range of silly costumes were obviously going to be involved. Most notoriously, a group of young Labour activists were photographed in top hats and tailcoats following Timpson around the constituency for the benefit of the watching press. I wouldn't say it was a complete shock because at that stage of the sort of political cycle, there was a sort of a Labour attempt, and this started with Cameron, if you'll remember, and a little bit with Boris, that they were sort of out of touch toffs and they couldn't connect or understand the lives of ordinary working people. You know, I'm a barrister, a white male with you know comfortable background, went to public school, so I fitted that mould. But they didn't do the homework. They hadn't really looked at who I was, who my family was, our background of shoe repairers, a family that have worked hard, made their own money, fostered children, given back to the community, and that really played into our hands. And their campaign went down like a lead balloon. The stunts did indeed backfire. Newspapers began running articles criticising the Labour campaign, describing the attack on aspiration and the death of new Labour. Steve McCabe insists the whole thing was completely overplayed. It started as a bit of fun, to be perfectly honest, and I think the original thing that was portrayed a lot in the press, the tarpily toffs, were two chaps dressed up in top hats for David Cameron's visit. I think we had another one, actually, that didn't get the same attention, where we had a guy in a hoodie chasing David Cameron as well. <laughs> and and that, that was at a time when there was quite a lot of that visual stuff in by-elections. It became a great distraction because if we weren't talking about toffs and tarpaulay toffs, we were going to be talking about 10p tax and Gordon Brown's cabinet being against them. On the doorstep, it was clear the by-election was only moving in one direction. Here's Ed Timpson again. We had some of our 
counting agents going to observe the opening of the postal vote ballots and you get a sense of whether you're on track to post a reasonable lead going into polling day itself, knowing where those postal votes are coming from. I do remember someone saying, I'm not really meant to tell you this, but we've looked at the postal vote openings and it's looking good. And that was my first feeling that maybe something's going to happen now. But by and large, it was what we were hearing on the doorstep. We were finding new voters, we were finding switches. So we could tell that there was the substance of something special going on. I haven't really had a chance to process what it meant for me and my family and how it was going to change so much of our lives. But I did, when I look back, take so much away from the experience and it's such a unique one. So few people get to have it. Because of the circumstances in which this one took place, because of the stakes that were so high, then to get over the finishing line, to deliver that sense of personal relief as well as professional euphoria was quite a heady mix. And I managed to hold myself together, but I did sleep for about three days afterwards. I do remember that. So do by-elections matter? There are plenty, of course, that don't tell us much beyond the local constituency. Ultra-safe seats with little to reveal about wider national trends. But a quick glance at the history book shows there are plenty more that can be truly seismic in their impact on British politics. Contests still remembered and discussed and debated for decades hence. For smaller parties, they offer the rare chance to gain a foothold, to seize on protest votes they might never have won in a general election, and to make a seat their own for years to come. For opposition parties, like Labour in 94 or the Tories in 08, they are a chance to show the world they are finally on the long march back to power. And for governments, too, there can be an opportunity to reassert authority and confidence after a turbulent period in office. Here's the veteran journalist, Steve Richards. I think a lot of them do matter for this simple reason. We as a group of journalists and politicians, decide that they matter. So if a party loses a by-election, which they could well have won under different circumstances, that has a very big impact on the way the leader of that party is perceived and often triggers a period of turbulence for that leader. Conversely, if a party wins makes a gain somewhere, which is a difficult political terrain for them under normal circumstances, that leader acquires a greater authority. Leadership in British politics is all about the degree to which a leader is perceived as a winner. And when a leader is seen as a winner, he or she has much more space to do what they want to do. If they are seen as a possible loser and by-elections frame all of this, they are in for a period of trouble. So in that sense, I think they are still really, really significant. So as the dust settles on the Hartlepool by-election this weekend, be wary of those trying to insist that the way you're reading it is all wrong. Every by-election has its own colour, its own quirks, its own special story to tell. But if the most important results in the end are our own perceptions of how each party leader has fared then the battle to spin the outcome has probably 
only just begun. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. My producer was Ellie Clifford of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my managing editor is James Randerson. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then.